0: If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. The great hope of the gospel is victory over death. That's that's where we are going. We are going to uh, heaven and then resurrection from the dead and then to live forever with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But between now and the day that the Lord takes us from this life, he has also given us instructions for how he wants us to live. And perhaps central to the life of a Christian and what God's desire is for us is that we would all be an active part of a local church. That when you think about how, how ought we to respond to what God has done for us in Christ on the cross uh, by, by taking our sin dying for us in our place and giving us, in place of our sin, His righteousness. Well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the promise of resurrection from the dead? How do we respond to the promise that we will live forever in resurrected, glorified bodies in a new creation that is filled with the glory of God and the very presence of God and that we, unlike even the highest angels, we'll be invited to look on the face of God. I mean, these are big promises. These are are big things that God has done, which begs the question, well, what, what does he want from us? And he wants faith, wants us to believe in the promises. But then he also says, I want you to find yourself in the middle of a local church and then in that local church, this is how I want you to behave. So we've spent the last half a year taking a look at what, what is it that God wants from us in the local church. And today we're going to wrap that up by taking a, a big picture view of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Let's just pray uh, that God would help us in this task. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I love this church as you love this church. And I pray that you would continue to bless us and protect us Uh, as we have set our minds and our hearts to studying your word to know what it is that you want from us i pray that you would help us then now to do it Uh, and we're not going to do it perfectly we're going to trip and stumble but lord by your mercy and your grace pick us up and help us day by day week by week year by year to live out first and second timothy That you would speak through me this morning, that you would bless this church, that you would glorify yourself. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you can remember back the very first sermon last September in this series, and the question was, Well, why did Paul write the letter of 1 Timothy? And there's one central answer and then a secondary answer open your Bibles to 1st Timothy 3 we're going to be hopscotching through 1st and 2nd Timothy so uh, try and keep up if you can with your Bibles we're going to start in the middle right in the middle because it's in the middle of 1st Timothy that we get the answer to why Paul wrote 1st Timothy in the first place verses 14 and 15 I hope to come to you soon This is Paul writing to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I do delay, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, a foundation of the truth. Paul wrote 1 Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to tell Timothy and subsequently to tell us How we ought to behave in the church, which is the household of God. And and as we're going through this morning, I want us to remember I don't know if we hit it hard enough in the last six months, actually, about the fact that the church is the household of God. Just as our family is a household unit, so we together are a family unit under the headship of God in Christ. And so what's true of the family is true of the church. And God has structured the family and the church very much the same way. And what these letters tell us is, as, as the head of our house, Christ is telling us how he wants us to behave. And he's, he's telling us this not as a suggestion, but with all authority. So in this letter, as we unpack it more fully, we find that Paul's addressing two major aspects to life in the church. On the one hand, he, he gives what we might call reactive instructions. That is, there's something going on in the church. And so Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy instructions that are reactive. And, and these are reactive instructions specifically about false teachers. So there's false teachers in the church, And there's certain instructions in this letter that react to that reality. And then there's another kind of instruction in this letter that are proactive. These are not in reaction to anything, but Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying these are just some proactive instructions for the way God wants you to behave in the church. And these are all about church matters. And so we'll see the letter goes back and forth from reacting against false teaching to proactively saying this is how I want you to live. So the letter begins with an address to Timothy about false teachers. and So go to chapter 1. We'll read verses 3 to 7. And we see this original charge to Timothy to address the false teaching in the Ephesian church. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. As I urged you, Timothy... Says Paul, when I was going to Macedonia, I want you to stay at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stop there for a minute. I want you to stop the false teachers from teaching false doctrine. Because what they're teaching is causing division and vain discussion in the church. Now in verse 5, Paul immediately reminds Timothy that your instruction and the reason that you're going to address the false teaching is that the false teaching doesn't lead to love. And good doctrine, sound teaching, the, the doctrines of grace and the gospel should always be the foundation for the cultivation of love. Verse 5. Now the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. To summarize, then, any doctrine that doesn't help to cultivate love in the local church not only is not helpful, but is quite likely false teaching. I think about legalism, which is what he goes on to address in this chapter. And he says, look, legalism has this, this appearance of godliness. It, it, it can help people to feel very righteous and pious and right before God. But it doesn't cultivate love. It, it cultivates a, a self-loathing, a fear, shame, guilt complex that then uh, it gets put onto other people as well. That, that's not the gospel. The gospel is about love and mercy and grace. Verse 18, we're told that this charge to combat false teachers, to cultivate love, is entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This is important, right? Because verse 5 is talking about love. Verse 18, this charge to promote love is war. It doesn't seem to go together. And, and as Canadians, we have to be very careful that we don't misunderstand verse 5. Verse 5 is not about taking the path of least resistance. It's not about tolerating whoever says whatever they say. Fighting for love is war. And so as a church, we need to f- wage the good warfare against anything that would take us away from love. Seems like a strange combination of metaphors. Paul then, after addressing this primary foundational instruction about good teaching versus false teaching, he goes on and he says, uh, there's some things that I want you to know about life in the church. And where does he begin? Having addressed teaching, he then says, first of all then, what? He addresses prayer. The church must be a place of prayer. Individual prayer, family prayer, corporate prayer. We must be a praying people. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say this. First of all, then, having dealt with false teaching, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way and that's why ever since we read this instruction we take time in every service to pray for people and pray specifically that they would be bold for the gospel that people would come to faith that the gospel would extend out from us into berry into ontario all around the world and so let us continue to pray for all people in the Ephesian church, there were things that the men were doing that was inhibiting the prayer. And there were things that the women were doing to inhibit the prayer. The men were angry. They were fighting with one another, probably about false doctrine. Paul says, don't, don't do that. In verse 8, he says, I desire then, if, if, if it's true that we, we are to be praying for all people, that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. And so we as men in the church, need to ask ourselves, are, are we wrestling with anger? Let's put it aside to pray together. Even if it doesn't feel like that's what we want to do, prayer will lead to a melting of hearts, an evaporation of that anger, and the anger will not stop the mission of the church, which is to pray for the extension of the gospel. Women, likewise, were inhibiting the worship and prayer life of the church by not dressing modestly, And so Paul says, when you gather together, let no one be distracted by the outer beauty of a woman so that it inhibits his ability to pray. Rather, the women are to dress modestly so that when the church gathers, neither men nor women are distracted by the extravagance or the beauty of the women in the church. In verse 9 and 10, we're told, likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see, good works don't distract the church from praying, but immodest attire does. And so it's inc- just as it's incumbent on the men to check their anger issues, it's incumbent on the women to ask themselves, am I dressed modestly? Are the things that I'm wearing, will it, will it drive another woman in the church into a competitive attitude? Will it cause a man to stumble and fall into lust, thus make it impossible for him in that moment to worship God and to pray? And so women are to dress modestly. But all of that has to do with the prayer life of the church. Paul then goes on with a, another set of instructions for the church, all about church structure. And he begins by distinguishing that which is right for a man to do and that which is right for a woman to do. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's not that women are not permitted to speak in any way or to pray or to sing. That's not the kind of quiet, but in the areas of teaching with authority over uh, the body of Christ in the local church and over exercising spiritual authority and governing authority in the church, God says through Paul, that's reserved for men. We don't have time to get into all of the reasons why, but God created Adam to lead and to teach. He created uh, Eve to help him. Likewise in the church, men are to lead and to teach, and women are to come alongside the men and to help them in the work of the gospel. It's very interesting to me, and we're, just note this, in verses 13 through 15, Paul goes back to Adam and Eve, the very first household that he created. Adam was the head, Eve was the helpmate, Adam was the leader teacher, Eve was the servant. I also want to remind you of what we went over in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Right? I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so you know how to behave in the household of God. So what I'm about to say about church structure falls right between the very first household of Adam and Eve and another allusion to the household of God, which is the church. Which, to me suggests that the structure of the church is going to look a lot like the original household structure of Adam and Eve and that ought to be reflected in the church. So we've already addressed verse 12 which says that men are not, are, women are not permitted to teach or have authority over a man. But is there anything that a woman can do in the church? Absolutely. Paul begins then In this section from chapter 3, 1 to 13, that's all about the structure of the church. And he begins by establishing who are to be the leaders of the church, who are to be the teachers of the church. He calls them here overseers, we call them elders. Verse 1 says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he goes through all these qualifications. These qualifications are for men only. Men only are to serve as overseers, as elders in the church. Why? Because they serve that function in the household that was originally given to Adam. To be the leader teacher. Then we get to, in verses 8 through 13, qualifications for servants which are often called deacons we call them stewards what i want you to see here is verses 8 and 11 how this position in the church if if elders overseers are the leaders teachers in line with the role originally given to adam then the role of deacons which we call stewards or servants it matches what God originally created Eve to do, to serve her husband. And so the household of God is, is structured like the first household, structured like our households, where the husband is the head and the wife is the helpmate. The elders are the overseers, and the deacons, or, or, or stewards in our case, are the helpmates. Which means then that it's nonsensical to say that women cannot serve in the capacity that Eve served as a helpmate to her husband, stewards or deacons, as helpmates to the elders. Take a look at verses 8 and 11. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now go down to verse 11. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. If your Bible says their wives, there should be a footnote to say that the original Greek actually says women likewise, or wives likewise. It's women likewise. And you'll notice that the four ways that the deacons in verse 8 are to be qualified are the very same four things that the women are to be qualified in as well, which means the women here are going to be doing deacon things just as the male deacons in verse 8. And thus we have in the church, God's household, that beautiful structure of male headship, and a helpmate that comes alongside. What's shocking about deacons is not that women can serve as deacons, but that men can. That's the shock. That men can actually serve as deacons because that was the role that was originally given to Eve. And God, in his kindness to the church, has said men and women who are gifted and called to be helpmates to the the elders may serve as Deacons, And so here we have male and female stewards in the church, but the structure is so simple. Male leaders, teachers, and then male and female servants who come alongside under the authority of the elders to help the church in the work of the ministry. Now we return the next part of the letter is about false teachers and it's a warning that there will be false teachers to come chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 Now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul feels it's important to remind Timothy that even in the latter times, that is even post-Pentecost, in a Spirit, Holy Spirit-indwelt church. Right? So the church, men and women, when we come to faith, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We think, well, that would be impossible then to have false teaching. Not so. Paul says, even in the latter times where the Holy Spirit is indwelling believers, there will be people who are self-deceived and will seek to deceive even those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and indwelt by Him. Paul says, you got to deal with that. You have to deal with that. And then the very next part of chapter 4 deals with the primary, or actually the job description of the pastor. And the primary focus of this job description is to teach sound doctrine. And and we've turned the role of the pastor into something that it's not in the West. Uh, The role of the pastor is to be the primary teacher, preacher, the one who is, is given all of his time to learning the word of God so that he is familiar with the word of God so that he can protect the church from these uh, insincere liars who are self-deceived and deceiving. And it's worthwhile having a man in the church who you support financially so that he has no other job so that he can protect the church from false teaching and so we see the, the, the core of this job description in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come. Now look at, look at all of these exhortations now, how much he's supposed to give himself to the ministry of the word. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. What things? The reading of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, the study of the Word of God. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the job of a pastor is to be a teaching elder who devotes himself, immerses himself, does not neglect, who practices, who progresses, who persists in the ministry of the Word of God. And I am so thankful to be a pastor in this church for you have given me every liberty to do exactly this. And there are so many pastors who have not been given that same opportunity that you have given to me. So, thank you. And for my part, I'll do everything I can to study the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and then to teach the Word of God. Paul then goes back to church matters. In chapter 5 is a long chapter which has to do with honoring. In 1 Timothy 5.3 he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. In verse 17 he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then in chapter six, verse one, he says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So you see widows receiving honor, elders receiving double honor, and masters, which would be akin to employers today, all honor. And what's the point? It's not easy to honor someone who can't take care of themselves. That's what the, uh, the widow piece is. And it, it, the, the principles go far beyond widows. The principles are for anyone in the church who has no family that can help them. Anyone who cannot look after themselves, the church must honor them by looking after them. And honor has two meanings, by the way. It, it means to, to revere and respect. It also means to provide material benefit too. So you, you ought not look down your nose at somebody who can't provide for himself or herself. You ought to respect that person as a child of God, provided they are uh, a believer and there's qualifications in there. We don't just give to anyone and everyone. But if they're a part of your church, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're an active uh, member of, of the household of God, look after them if they have no one else. And elders who rule well uh, are to be considered worthy of a double honor, and this just emphasizes that elders are, yes, struggle with sin like every other member in the church, but they are to aspire to a life that is above reproach. They are called by God to be an overseer of your soul. We will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ, not just for our own life and the life of our wife and the wife of our children, but also for the life of this church. That's a burden that you don't have to bear if you're not an elder. God will not ask you, if you're not an elder over his church, he will not ask you how you cared for the souls of the people in the local church. And because of that, elders are worthy of double honor. The church is to respect, submit to, and appreciate the work of the elders of the local church. Secondly, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching means not that, that I should receive a greater respect than Glenn and Blair, but I get a paycheck. You provide materially for me. You are of material benefit to me so that I can provide for my family. And again, I thank you for the generous uh, provision that you give to me and to our family, to my family. And then what does it mean, then, that uh, a slave is to give all honor to his master? Let's just stay in the realm of slaves. Like, that just seems unbelievable. What does it mean? Well, what's the, what's the impulse, perhaps, of a slave? To rebel against the master, perhaps. Maybe not totally, but at least in his heart, to say, you know, you know, You don't have any authority over me. You have no power over me. But what God says here is if you are a slave, and you have to remember, we don't have time to get into it, but this is not the American experience of slavery. This is the Roman experience of slavery, which is not identical. So this was the social safety net in Rome. So that if you were in debt and you couldn't pay off your debts, you couldn't look after yourself, that, then you would indenture yourself to a master and he would provide for you everything that you need. And so it's, it's different than our understanding of slavery in, the, in America. Uh, but even still it would be hard. To give all honor. But what does it mean? It means that you live. Your your whole reason for living is to be of benefit to your master. And that translates over to employees and employers. If you're employed by someone, they are providing you with material benefit. They're enabling you to uh, put food on the table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head. And so... What God says is your whole reason for living, especially when you're at work, but even when you're not at work, is to be of benefit to your employer, to show him or her the proper respect that is due, and to work hard. Paul ends his letter by going back and addressing false teachers again. Do you see how important this issue of false teaching is? He starts with it, he, he repeats it in the middle, and he goes back to it at the end, which means we better be on guard against false teaching. In chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, he says that there are going to be problem people in the church and they must be dealt with. You can't just put a blind eye to these people who are causing divisions, especially when it, they are maligning the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look there at chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These are tough verses. I'm not going to re-preach them. But the whole point uh, when, when I did preach them is that it's not always easy to distinguish between who are, who are right and who are wrong. Who, who are the problem people? Do we actually have to blame someone? And the answer is yes. Sometimes you have to say you're, you're a problem person. And, and you either repent of, of what you're doing or you, you have to go. And the way that you identify these people is that they will be puffed up with conceit. They'll not properly understand the gospel. They will crave controversy. They they will always be stirring up conflict and division in the church. And they'll quarrel, not about the big ideas, but about words. These problem people will be filled with envy, that is, uh, uh, an unhealthy competition, Dissension, they'll refuse to submit to the leadership of the church. They'll slander people, they'll they'll have evil suspicions, always thinking the worst of others, and they will cause constant friction. Some of them won't be saved, they'll be depraved, some of them will be confused, that is, they'll be deprived, and some of them will think that just by being a part of the church is some way that they can please God, that there's a means of gain just by going through the motions. This is very tricky. To identify these people, but I, we must for their sake and for the sake of the church. By contrast to these faithful people, he says that the leadership of the church must fight the good fight of the faith and, and mobilize the church to fighting the good fight of the faith. Take a look at verse 11. As for you, O men of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that's what we're endeavoring to do here at South Shore. Fight the good fight of the faith together under Christ. Finally, Paul wraps up this letter with a warning to the rich, which is a warning to all of us. As for the rich in this present age, previously in the letter he said, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So we all have much more than food and clothing, which means we're all rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, that is arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. You'll remember what Jesus said. Uh, it is very, no, it is impossible for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Or no, he said very difficult, Sorry. It is very difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. That should scare every one of us. And his disciples said, well, who then can get in? He says, well, it may be impossible for you, but nothing is impossible with God. This is very important instruction. We want to do this so we don't disqualify ourselves on account of our material riches. That's 1 Timothy. It seems that Paul having written to Timothy received a letter back from Timothy that says Paul I've I've implemented your instructions I've I've implemented that first letter it's not going well for me my church didn't quite like it and if if you thought things were bad before, they're they're worse now. People are rebelling against me. And I'm on the verge of a mental breakdown, a, a spiritual collapse. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I, I want to quit. I don't want to be their pastor. Which is the occasion for Second Timothy. Second Timothy can di- be divided into two parts. The first half of this letter is all about enduring opposition in the local church. There's going to be some people who who suffer because they desire to implement 1 Timothy. And so the first half of this letter says, well, you you have to endure. Don't stop just because it got difficult. The second half of the letter says, is all about addressing this opposition. So it's not just keep going, but you have to do something. You're not done. You have to keep going, and you have to address the opposition until there is no more opposition. So let's take a look first at enduring opposition. Those first, almost the first chapter actually all of the first chapter is just Paul encouraging Timothy, saying keep going. Endure. Persevere. Suffer for the sake of Christ. Remember me. Remember how much I love you. Remember your mother. Remember your grandmother. Remember the Scriptures. Remember Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 6. For this reason, that is basically what I just said, the people that are on Timothy's side, Paul and Lois and Eunice, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. So the opposition in the Ephesian church was beginning to quench the fire in Timothy. And Paul says, don't, don't let that happen. Fan into flame the gift of God. And what was the gift of God? We found out in 1 Timothy 4 that the gift of God that was given to Timothy was teaching and leading in the church. You've got to lead, Timothy. You've got to keep going. You must exercise headship. You must stay true to uh, how God has gifted and called you. So don't allow the opposition to snuff you out. Fan into flame that gift. Lead and teach. Don't be afraid. God did not give us a, a spirit of fear. You don't have to have the fear of man. You don't to worry about what everyone in the local church thinks of you. God gave you a spirit of power. When you stand to teach, Timothy, when you stand to lead, remember that behind you is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's power. And love. Don't abuse that power. Even with those who are opposing you, love your enemies. And self-control. Get a hold of yourself, Timothy. Don't fall apart at the seams, but control yourself. Stand up, teach, stand up, and lead. And then he says uh, in verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia, and Asia is not what we think of Asia, but it's that Asia minor where Ephesus was the main church. You're aware that everyone in Asia, Ephesus included, turned away from me, among whom are even Phygelus and Hermogenes, and I read those two names, as I uh, even those two guys, I, we never would have dreamed in a million years that they would abandon me. But they did. So the first part of, of enduring opposition is keep going. Then he transitions in, cha- in chapter 2, verse 1, and he reiterates basically, verse 1 is a summary of chapter 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he he transitions his letter, and he says, you got to get busy. Don't just sit as a a puddle at home feeling sorry for yourself. Get busy doing the work of of a minister of the gospel. Make disciples. Take a look at verse 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faithful men, I I think we've debated this a little bit in our discipleship groups, but primarily what it means there in context is in light of all of the people who are opposing you, uh, are they saved or not? Well, I don't know, but some of them probably are not saved. Some of them are probably confused and they are saved. That's not what this faithful men thing is all about. It's about find people who don't oppose you and disciple them. Run with the people that want to run with you and forget about everybody else. You've got to find the people who are on side, the people who are not a thorn in your side, the people who are not trying to fight you at every corner and invest in them. If anyone wants to be invested in, invest in them. Make disciples of anyone who wants to be discipled. And don't worry about the people who don't want to be discipled finally in this first half we have stay focused it's so easy when a church is in conflict when it it seems to be ripping apart it's so easy to lose focus uh, on what really matters Uh, and I've been through that in in ministry over the last 13 years you start worrying about things that matter very little compared to what matters the most and so at the end of chapter 2 he says You've got to stay focused. If you're going to see this through, you can't be distracted. You see, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. If he, if he can't rob us of our salvation, which he can't, he just wants to disturb us in the local church. Well, don't let him. Verse 8. Stay focused. Remember Jesus Christ. Stay focused. Stay focused. Remember Jesus. Remember what he did on the cross. Remember that he is risen from the dead. Remember that He's the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And then Paul goes on to say, look, it's because I remember Jesus Christ and preach this gospel that I'm chained and I'm about to be executed. But I know that no one can chain up the gospel. No one can execute the gospel So you run your race until this world snuffs you out but know that everything that you've poured into the gospel of Jesus Christ will endure past you because because God has raised Jesus from the dead. He has seated him on David's throne. Jesus will return to reign as king forever and ever. Focus on that and keep going. Finally, 2 Timothy finishes with uh, a series of instructions about how we are to address opposition. All opposition in the church must be addressed by the Word of God. Uh, it's tempting at times to use our own wisdom or to allow politics in the local church to solve the problems. Well, that person, you know, is an important part of the church or whatever, so we're going to side with them. No. No all conflict needs to be addressed by the Word of God without partiality. We see in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And it's not very clear in the English here, verse 16, but avoid. But, but the imagery there is of gangrene. And we talked about how the driving metaphor here is that of a compassionate doctor who wants to save the life of a patient who has gangrene. And so this, this word that is translated avoid, it has the connotation of cutting off. Cut off. Irreverent babble. Cut off the people who are causing the conflict, amputate the limbs that need to be amputated for the sake of the patient, for the sake of the body. Save the life of the church. But how are you going to do it? Well, make sure you do everything you can to be a worker who's approved by God, who rightly handles the word of truth. Make sure if you're going to go into that operating room with a scalpel to do uh, a very serious surgery to the local church, Make sure that your scalpel is the word of God. Related to this is that we are told here that we must exercise church discipline. Take a look at verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Just pause there. So the goal, you never start church discipline with amputation. That's the last thing. Lord's servant must be Uh not quarrelsome, kind, teaching patient enduring evil gentle all these things the goal of church discipline is repentance restoration inclusion that's the goal but that's not the end of this passage chapter 3 verse 1 but understand this I mean Paul's being very clear right but Underscore this. Understand this. Don't neglect this reality. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then he gives 19 character qualities that you might expect to find in the local church. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, Avoid such people. What he means there is break fellowship with such people. He's not saying just pretend that you don't see what they're doing, avoid them remove them from the church so that's not the first step and hopefully it never comes to that and to be honest with you in our current cultural context i don't see us ever getting to to removing someone from the church it could happen but i doubt it but in our day and age you know once church discipline starts people usually remove themselves They're not even willing to see out the process. Not willing to sit down with the elders and to actually go through everything and either repent or to be forced out. They just say, well, there's another local church like three minutes down the road, so see you later, I'm out of here. That's not the vision of the local church. So I don't think we'll ever have to remove anybody. Uh, But people self-amputate all the time, which grieves me. Two more major instructions in this letter. How do we address opposition? We preach the word. Take a look at 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Having just said that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped... And complete, ready for every good work, he says, I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, that's very serious. And we spoke about how uh, whatever is going to be said is going to be central to the life of the church. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here it is, preach the word. Preach the word. How do you address the opposition in the church? You preach the word, and, and, and the word will have its proper effect. It will change people or it will repulse people. But the preaching of the word of God will not return to God empty. It will do the work that God intends it to do. So, Timothy, so Adam, so anyone who stands in the pulpit, preach not your own ideas, not your own emotions, not your own life, not your own experiences, not your own preferences. Preach the Word of God. And I hope when I die, that anyone who outlives me will say, well, he endeavored to preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. When the church wants you to preach and when the church doesn't want. When the church is growing, when the church is shrinking, when the church is united, when the church is in conflict, be ready in season and out of season. When you are feeling close to God, Timothy, and when you're feeling far away from God, stand up there and preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And finally, Paul ends his letter, as we ended it last week, With this exhortation, church, we must stand together and work together in the grace of the Lord. Nothing matters if we're not standing together and working together, if we're not leaning into the grace of God. I am going to hurt you. You are going to hurt me. You are going to hurt one another. That's life in the local church. The closer we get to one another, the more opportunity we have to hurt one another. But through all of those injuries may grace cover over with love a multitude of sin. And would we stand together and work together in the grace of the Lord until the Lord returns or until He calls us home. That's why at the end of these two letters Paul says the Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. In these two letters, we've identified 22 instructions for the life of the church. Our goal now, then, having read these letters is to implement these letters, to be a living epistle. That that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to walk through that door, he would be pleased with us because he would see not perfect people, but people who together have said, we care to implement 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That we want to be pleasing to God. We want to conform ourselves to his word. We don't want to try to fit his word and conform it to our desires so sure bible church is to be a church that makes every effort to reflect the things that we have read the things that we have learned in 1st and 2nd Timothy i hope that over these last 6 months as we as we listened to the preaching of the word of god and as we went into our discipleship groups that you have a familiarity and a knowledge of these books that you didn't have before and i'm confident that god will bless us for our efforts that he has established a strong foundation we are ready to welcome new believers in here, to to disciple them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are the core of this church. And it is up to us to carry this banner forward, not to fight, but to stand together, work together, and to invite God to do a great work in us and through us and among us. And I believe that He will. I love this church. I love you. I am so pleased to be your pastor. I hope you love one another and I hope that you are pleased and, and glad to be a church that takes seriously First and Second Timothy. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot here that we just went through. I pray you'd help us. Help us to be a living epistle. Pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen.